Hello everyone, I'm Georgia Scar. And I'm Chloe Young. And we are the co-founders and co-executive directors of EcoCircle International. Today we're here with Alexandra Bowman, the editorial political cartoonist for Our Daily Planet and The Lincoln Project. So, hello Alexandra, thank you so much for being here today. Can you start off by telling us about yourself? Sure thing. Well, I'm so honored to be here. And yeah, I mean, you covered it. I am the editorial political cartoonist for the environmental news platform, Our Daily Planet, which is female and Hoya founded. And uh, I'm also the official political cartoonist for the Lincoln Project. Uh, we've had a horrible couple months. I, it has been horrible. Thank you for asking. Uh, but it's good now. <laughs> We're fine. <laughs> Like I had an unfortunate number of like friends and acquaintances emailing me like, is your workplace imploding? Is your life going to explode? And I'm like, maybe. And then it was fine. But we're fine. It's all good. This is nice and relaxing. I appreciate it. <laughs> of course, of course. And um, just for some context. So you're in you live in D.C. now, correct? Yeah, I live 30 or 40 minutes away from Georgetown's campus. I'm a, I'm 21. I uh, am a junior at Georgetown, double majoring in English and art. And I run the Georgetown-based political comedy web series called The Hilltop Show, uh, which now has a uh, student, graduate and undergraduate student run staff of over 50 people um, from around the U.S. And we have a couple from Europe. Uh, but yeah, um, we also have a couple high school students on the team. Uh, so if any of your listeners are interested, they can actually, sorry, I, I don't mean to plug something this early, but you can, you can email uh, hilltopshow at gmail.com and just list like two sentences uh, about why you might be interested. And we the, the bar is low. <laughs> the bar is extremely low. <laughs> just <laughs> If you want to make memes and put them on your resume and say that you do it for a college level organization, the doors are open to you. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. I'm sure our listeners will definitely get involved in that. It sounds like a great opportunity. Um, so you mentioned that you do political cartoons. So how did you end up doing political cartoons? Yeah, I mean, if in all honesty, it was kind of an accident. Um, uh, my mom's an artist and she grew up, she, she helped me grow up in a house full of art supplies that were uh, surrounding me all the time. And I, I have always loved kind of classic children's books with expressive illustrations with little witty characters in them, like a Quentin Blake and Beatrix Potter. Um, and over time, I, uh, after doing a lot of little doodle, doodles in my spare time, I realized I had accidentally developed a skill that I kind of felt obligated to capitalize on. And, uh, you know, when you draw in restaurant waiting rooms for long enough, um, you accidentally develop uh, something that you can use. Um, but yeah, um, around age like 14 in high school, I realized, oh, man, th this is something I can do and I should do this. Um, and so I was originally going to like a weird tech high school here in Virginia, uh, which I transferred out of. And now I'm an English and art major. Uh, but um, uh, at my, the school I transferred to, I was like, gosh, I need to reinvent myself. What's a skill I can use to kind of reinvent myself? And um, my the awesome AP art teacher there named Mr. Winfrey um, said, hey, we have AP art. You know, you've seemed qualified. Let's skip all the other four art classes like art one through four and join us here um so i got to do ap art as a sophomore um in high school and got a five on that and that kind of was like oh no no this, this is what my job's gonna be i have to do this now it was way less like of an obligation than i'm describing it was just like oh my gosh amazing this is something i can do um 
And so I added some drawings to my college application. And I presume that helped in some way. It's like, she has a weird talent. That's interesting. That might help for application. And then um, I was uh, became a news writer for the Georgetown newspaper, uh, The Hoya. And one day the cartoonist at the time, who, by the way, was one of the two students at Georgetown whose parents uh, bought his way in, which was weird. I replaced him. <laughs> Also, the, the, there was one girl who like was totally cool with her parents buying her way in and was obnoxious about it. But this one student was completely unaware. So I feel so bad for him. He's had a real heck of a time. Um, but I ended up like being the new cartoons for the newspaper. Um, this is a much longer chronology than you wanted. Um, and then, uh, Georgetown hosted like a political debate thing, like co-run by MSNBC and Our Daily Planet, uh, featuring all the presidential candidates. Like you can Google it, like the Georgetown Climate Forum 2020. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders, Marianne Williamson, all the primary folks at the time. And so I uh, decided to sit in the pews of the event and like draw the candidates just for fun and post them on Twitter and tag our Daily Planet and everyone running it. And during the event, I got an email from um, Miro, my boss at our daily, my now boss at our daily planet saying, hey, you want to do weekly cartoons for us? I was like, yeah, let's do that. So that's how I got that job is Twitter. Um, and I also got the Lincoln Project job via Twitter because Miro's husband was a friend of Steve Schmidt. And uh, one day I was like, wow, look at this cartoon she did. Steve Schmidt, Steve, Steve Schmidt, you should hire her. And uh, I got the job within a couple hours. So the, the moral of that story there is uh, A, if you have an interest and you have the bandwidth and time, like capitalize on that because it's something you enjoy doing and it's not going to be a pain for you to go out of your way and practice it. And moral number two is that Twitter and social media are shockingly effective for helping you develop your career. <laughs> shockingly. Um, I, I know I'm using anecdotal evidence here, but uh, my two biggest jobs have been uh, the result of me tagging people on Twitter. Uh, and other people helping me with that. So um, use social media to your advantage professionally. That's brilliant. I, I love that message of kind of capitalizing on your skills. And that's what we talk about a lot in, you know, ECI and in the fellowship and tell our fellows, like if you have an interest that, you know, that's, that's not some kind of useless hobby that you have to have, you know, even though hobbies can be great just for, you know, passing time, but you can really use your interests and your passions. And, you know, because those typically are things that you're good at, and you can use that for anything, whether it be politics or environmentalism. Um, and, you know, we had a podcast um, interview that we talked to that we had a few episodes ago talking about art activism and how people often think that art and activism are separate things. But, you know, as you've as you've shown, they can be very, very interconnected. And, so you mentioned your work on Our Daily Planet. So could you expand a bit on what Our Daily Planet does, what its objective is, and what your cartoons do for them? Yeah, so we have we're a small team of all women for some reason. We don't have like a no men policy to my knowledge, but uh, it's all women. And uh, the idea is that my one of my bosses, Monica, um, was I believe I could pull it up. She, she, oh no, it was her former title. She's like a former weather Washington insider in the best way. And uh, she um, is super in tune with what's going on in the climate world. And so in our Slack, she will pitch stories 
um, about just big climate news that's going on. And she'll say, who wants to write about this? And then one of the writers will, I'll do it. And we'll put them out. And they're pretty short, usually, the articles that we post, like 300 to 600 words often. Um, And those go up throughout the day. Um, We have an amazing graphic artist, uh, Annabelle, who does... um, gorgeous minimalistic like stylized graphics that go up on our instagram all day um but yeah we 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 try to make the uh news going on in the climate world as accessible and interesting to a wide audience as possible so uh largely thanks i mean not largely but um our marketing work that animal does and kind of our visual identity i think I wasn't intending to like include myself in that category, but I think that the visual work that we do is really key to that um, because one easy way, to, I think, to help people remember you as an organization is to uh, make a memorable visual um, identity for yourself because it's. I think it's harder to um, create a unique storytelling literary approach in your writing and have that be something that sticks out in people's heads because unfortunately very few people are doing a lot of reading anymore like especially young people and I'm sorry to you know hate on my own tribe I guess but um the I, one of my mentors is Matt Worker uh, from Politico, who's like a co-founder of Politico. Is also their cartoonist. Um, and one thing that he's told me a bunch of times is one of the beautiful things uh, and powers of the editorial cartoon is that people don't read anymore. <laughs> And those who do read know that it takes a lot of time to read something. So they're going to be very selective in what they choose to spend their time reading. Uh, But the great thing about an editorial cartoon or a graphic is uh, it takes seconds to ingest. (laughs) Like the image itself takes seconds to look at, right? Um, Ideally, a cartoon will make you think. uh, But often that thinking kind of starts churning in your mind while you're doing the dishes later that day. You know, you can see it, ingest it and then think about it later. Uh, But the, I guess, net amount of time it takes to look at the piece of art and think about it in the moment while you're seeing it versus contemplating it later is much shorter with a cartoon. Uh, But yeah, I think that's one of our Daily Planet's huge strengths is that uh, visual side. Yeah, I think that's really important. And like, even you've seen with our generation with like TikTok, right? It's 60 second videos and people don't have an attention span for much longer than that. So it's really important to, yeah, it's really important to kind of cater to what the younger people need almost. And I agree. I think like when I see a graphic or something that pulls me in and then if, you know, the graphic intrigues me, then I'll like read the article or something. So I think that's a really, really good point and kind of expanding on that why is it important um to make issues like climate change more accessible through through forms like cartoons yeah well i mean climate change and you guys can you know preach about this at much more length than i can uh is the biggest, most pressing pressing issue of our time, uh, which is kind of unfortunate because I think it's arguably one of the issues that fades into the background of our everyday lives. Because kind of like COVID, it's an invisible enemy in a way where it's out. It's um, going to have a di- direct impact on our futures. It's having a direct impact on our lives now, uh, but it's not in your face. <laughs> it's there's less tangible action that you can see going on up in the atmosphere. Uh, but we we need to bring people's attention to how present, uh, clear and present of a danger it is. Um, and I think that visual work, editorial cartoons, and 
um, the 400, 300 word essays that our Daily Planet's putting out are excellent weapons to have in your climate change fighting arsenal. Certainly, I think that's huge. Just having kind of a topic as large as climate change that there's such a disconnect of in the general public and having that in something so digestible like a cartoon or just a short article is really crucial. And especially, you know, on something science-based like COVID-19 or climate change, there's a lot of people that think it's too academic for them and they're not able to understand it. Even if, you know, climate change itself on a very basic level is relatively simple to understand, you know, that can initially be difficult for people. And that's like, when I explain climate change to people, I always like to use diagrams and things like that because that really does help people understand you know you don't need to be some kind of astrophysicist or biochemist and stuff to be able to grasp these concepts you know something just like a cartoon can be huge for them to just you know it to click and them to really understand why and I think that's as well why people deny climate change you know just like when going back to COVID-19 why people deny that you know the vaccine people say the vaccine doesn't work the mask doesn't work it typically just comes from a misunderstanding and by making it accessible and digestible for them, that really is, that really is crucial. Yeah. And um, we, I'm in a class right now called science in the news and it's awesome. It's, it's explicitly a science class for non-scientists. I said I was an English major, uh, but the idea is, and I think more classes should be like this, both at the high school and college level. Uh, the idea is that no one in that class is going to go into science, <laughs> but everyone in that class is going to encounter science content online and needs to know how to ingest it and how to talk about it in the comment sections. Like yesterday, our breakout room activity was looking at uh, false comments, like inter- comments for, for, that were vitriolic and wrong, and uh, we had to talk about how to respond to them. Now, I think that was a false premise in that assignment because I found the best way to deal with idiots online is to not respond at all. Uh, But we spent 30 minutes talking about how to respond. But anyway, a really applicable, necessary class. Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. And like you were saying, um, going off of what you were saying, if only the experts understand these issues, we're in trouble (laughs) because there are only so many experts. Society is mostly, you know, people who probably i'm guessing here but i'm guessing there's a silent majority who cares about climate change and hopes that it doesn't kill us all uh but probably doesn't have the bandwidth in their intellectual or actual lives to deal with it um so i guess the job of environmental news platforms and activist organizations is to catch those people when they can and help milk small action out of them yeah, definitely. I think like an expert may see like a 2000 word article and be really excited to read it. But someone who doesn't know much about climate change or who isn't passionate about it yet, they're not going to be excited when they see the little like 10, 15 minute read button at the top. You know, I'm not even excited about that. <laughs> I do think that like cartoons and different ways to kind of get people in and get snapshot snapshots of information is really important because in anything like if you read something super long, you're not going to retain all of it. We can't retain all of it. So getting like the important parts across is is essential in order to create a widespread understanding of the crises. To kind of bouncing off of that, I think there are so many youth artists and so many people, especially now, that are passionate about art and love being creative. So how can they get involved in activism? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm going to start off with maybe unexpected and basic thing. You got to be a good artist first. (laughs) 
<laughs> because I've seen a lot of, and I, I'm trying to be humble and everything. I'm 21. I have so much, so many areas to grow. I've seen so many artists and, and activists online who have that fire in their belly. They have that enthusiasm, but their artistic skills just aren't quite there. And I would really recommend strongly uh, that people go and strengthen their art skills first before they dive in. Doesn't mean you have to stop, like keep going, but don't be mad at yourself because you don't see the results that you want be while your art skills aren't quite up to par. Um, but I've, I've seen a lot of editorial cartoonists who are young people um, who um, have really good intentions and great messaging uh, because one of the things that makes political cartooning interesting as an art form is there's a strong visual element and there's a strong written element, you know, hence, I guess, English art major, like you got to combine them. Like what makes a good movie, right? Like Minions is visually gorgeous, right? It's incredible. Like the CGI in Minions is stellar. It would make like 1995 Pixar, like lose their minds. But the story in Minions is hot garbage. <laughs> and that's why it's a bad movie. So you got to have both. You got to have both parts. Um, so I'd recommend that uh, aspiring cartoonists, young people are hoping to combine art and activism, um, really strengthen their art skills and storytelling skills. And we're all growing, but don't be mad at yourself as a young person if your work isn't having the I, this is something I'm having to tell myself every day because I keep forgetting. I'm 21. Like, I am not there yet. <laughs> I'm still growing. They hired me. Lincoln Project hired me despite the fact I'm 21 for some reason. Um, so don't be upset when you don't immediately become, you know, Cal or, you know, Stephen Colbert. Like, you, it takes time. Certainly. And I think kind of celebrating yourself along that journey is really crucial because you're never going to start out as, you know, a brilliant artist, although some people are, you know, born proshies, but for the for the majority of, you know, artists or anyone in any field, you're not going to start out brilliant. And it takes time and practice and really allowing yourself that time to grow. And, you know, as you said, even if you're still working in art activism, but you're still working on your own skills, that really is crucial because anyone in any field is always learning and is always growing. And, you know, the best people in those fields are probably the people that are constantly learning and growing the most you know even if you just think of teachers you know there's this kind of notion that teachers they go to school and then they just teach for the rest of their lives but a lot of teachers are still going to new courses and learning new things all the time whether it be in a professional setting you know going to different training sessions for teachers or just learning from their students so really being open to always learning and always growing and like collaborating as well and you talk about combining you know art and storytelling you know, you can learn from others and working from other people that maybe have different skill sets than you do to really maximize your output overall. 100%. Well, like, um, I worked with Cal, who Kevin Callagher, who has been the uh, political cartoonist for The Economist for several decades. I think it's 40 years, might be longer. Um, and he, I worked on him. I worked on a webcast with him last summer. Um, and we got to do a lot of little one-on-one -on -one mentorship, mentorship throughout that. And uh, something he told me that was really interesting was a take on how long it takes you to do a piece of art. Like he, at the time, he pulled out his cartoon that he had made for The Economist like the week before. And they said, this took me 60 years <laughs> because it took me 60 years to develop the skills to be able to do that. Um, so 
like if you're looking at cartoon like I did, that took 20 years to do, which is not too shabby. But a cartoon that an expert made took 50 years to do. So anyway, so we're all we're all trying our best. And Cal said he's still learning. So he said, yeah, when I do cartoons in 10 years, those will have taken 80 years to do and they're going to be better. Like I look I don't want to put words in his mouth because I'm a little less sure exactly what he said on this front. But he's like, yeah, I look at stuff from three years ago and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this could be better. I, I look at stuff I made a week ago. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if I had just done this, it would have been so much better. But yeah, we it's um, if you have a perfectionist bone in your body as an artist, you need to mute it or at least turn it down a little bit. You need a little bit of that like obsessive attention to detail, but you got to understand we're all still growing. Definitely. I think that it's so important to learn from failures or not failure necessarily, but learn from mistakes as well. You know, if you see something you could have done better, well then do it better next time. And, you know, to be able to kind of take your mistakes and take, take the things that you didn't do as well and improve them. I think that's one of the biggest life skills anyone can have. And obviously I'm only 16, but you know, I, I do think that learning from your mistakes is so important, so crucial in literally anything you do. Yeah. Um, and like one of the things Cal told me also, and I have a massive, I, I'm, I'm going to turn my laptop. I hope it doesn't make too much noise. I have a huge like idea wall of index cards in my room uh, from like meetings. And one of the things I have up at the top is uh, something Cal said, like, um, oh no, I forgot what it was. <laughs> oh no. Oh yeah. It was, you have to take time to digest. Like you have to take time in between projects to sit back and say, okay, how did that go? All right. That's interesting. I'm going to change that for the next time. But it's not just learning from your mistakes. It's sitting there and let your brain simmer. It's like what your brain does at night when you're in bed, when your subconscious is working through stuff. You need to be able to give yourself time to do that while you're awake. I remembered. I remember what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was it. Definitely. I think that reflection process is really huge in growing, you know, even if it's just like in an academic setting on a test, you know, say you take a maths test, you do it, then it gets marked and you take a few days. The most important thing to learn from it isn't that you got, you know, 80% say, because, you know, oh, you did the test, you got 80%. Cool, but you haven't really learned from it because you don't know what you got wrong and you don't know how you can fix that. But the most valuable part is to really go over it and look what you did wrong and kind of improve on that. And that goes for anything, you know, art activism, activism in general, you know, climate science, all these different things. It's really about reflecting and accepting those mistakes and, you know, being uncomfortable. Yeah. Being comfortable, being uncomfortable. That is really crucial, especially as an activist and, you know, as an artist that can be really kind of unnerving because you're, kind of presenting yourself and your opinions and your skills to the world and it's kind of for people to judge like the other day um I did this I wrote a poem for this like activism event open mic night and I like I did it and I wrote the poem and I was like at home alone I was like yeah this is so good and I like read it to myself and I was like wow and then like the next day I was so nervous and I was like why on earth would I be doing this and I was like so unnecessarily nervous and then I did it and it went really well and I was like that was really hard but I was I was at least trying to be comfortable being uncomfortable and it went really well so that's just one example totally and I guess on that front and maybe you're about to talk to uh, maybe you're about to talk about social media and maybe you're not but that's actually an interesting point um yes as an activist you know as someone who's attempting to be funny or influential online um you're going to be putting yourself out there a lot you're going to be doing things that you know your little younger brother might call cringe all day long uh but one great way to like save yourself in case you're about to say something that you might regret either in the immediate future or as an adult trying to get a job um is 
give yourself an hour or two to think about a tweet before you tweet it. <laughs> or, uh, you know, if you're working on a cartoon, you know, tell other people your idea before you spend six hours on it. Uh, it might not be like offensive, but it could be better, you know. Um, but like Cal said, you know, sitting there and thinking deeply about what you're doing is so important. Um, because so many people like college guys, like so many folks will post things that will get them in trouble. Like um, you can read news stories about it. Like even if you have good intentions, you have to understand the impacts that your work might have on others, um, either in terms of like get, preventing you for, or your family from like getting jobs, you know, cause like my mom's a teacher and her bosses follow me on Twitter and she's like, Oh, did you just tweet something about Ted Cruz? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> said he was a seditionist piece of garbage. I didn't say that. I did say he was a seditionist, uh, but you know, you got to think about the way that your actions affect others. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really important point, especially with like climate change and just activism in general. I mean, Climate change, obviously, it's science, and I wish it wasn't as polarizing. I wish it wasn't as political as it is, but it is political. So, you know, it's so important just to sit on what you're going to say. And I even do that, like, with writing essays. Like, I'll write it, and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to take a day break. Then I come back the next day. I'm like, this is garbage. Like, I need to rewrite this whole thing. So it is so important just to, you know, think about what you're going to say before you say it. Just in general, life lesson. Um, That's the scary so, thing about podcasts and like the live show that I have is like everything you say is on the record. I These words I'm saying right now are on the record, but I don't have time to think about them. I'm just saying them and now they're out there for the internet to see. So <laughs> it's scary. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> an honor, an honor, but yeah. For sure. So kind of going back um, to your experience and like your... All, all of the work that you do, how have you been able to use opportunities that's provided by your university, which is Georgetown, to your advantage? And what advice would you give to other college or high school students as well who want to get involved in relevant school activities or clubs? Yeah, I mean, two things. One, in, not to put more pressure on high school students who are already, you know, killing themselves to get into the uh, best schools that they can. The college you go to really matters. Like maybe it won't matter in the like conversations you'll have at, you know, cocktail parties in 10 years and the way that you think it does. You're like, oh yes, you know, I went to, yeah, oh, I went to, oh, oh, really? You went to that school? It's not going to be like that. But it will matter in that the school you go to in your four years and beyond will give you the networking opportunities and connections and quality pools of peers that are going to change your life. Like I, I'm a big Doctor Who fan and there's a lot of episodes like tracking events and historical timelines to major events. And I can definitively track like my life right now to that climate forum event. Like if I hadn't sat there in the pews and drawn Pete Buttigieg and posted it, um, I would not have any of the most important jobs to me right now like that's one take it do as well as you can in school like don't try your best like you can't do better than your best but try your best to get into the best pools of people and opportunities possible um and make opportunities for yourself in that way and point number two is make opportunities for yourself like I made the show <laughs> because there wasn't a daily show slash last week tonight slash 
SNL really equivalent on Georgetown's campus. And I was like, also, there's only a few others. And I kind of want to be my own boss. <laughs> I want to be empress of my own little kingdom. Um, so I made my own. And, you know, I don't have to email anyone to confirm that we can use a furry as our logo. I, I make those decisions. Uh, but yeah, uh, make your own opportunities. If the opportunity you want isn't there, make it for yourself. <laughs> of course, it's going to be harder to make something from the ground up, obviously. Uh, but with enough hard work and time and like raw passion and staying up late and all that, you can do it. <laughs> like I went from, pff, what's a low point I can describe for the show? I mean, I went from having the idea in the middle of church that's not a low point, but you know, I came up, it, it went from an idea to like a year and a half later, we had the director of last week tonight interviewed on our show, you know, so he somehow said yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, you make opportunities for yourself. It's yeah. Not- I think that also brings a really important point that like the worst that can happen if you like reach out to someone is that they like don't reply or say no. Yeah. Like, and then you're just right where you were. You know, yeah. so there's literally like, there's no kind of downside in, you know, getting in contact with people and trying to form more relationships. There, There is no downside. The worst that can happen is you're in the place where you started. Yeah. That, like, yeah. I, I, yeah, like one of my closest friends is actually like a British high school student who lives in the UK and she desperately wants to work at NASA. And so she is like the master of the cold call. She's the master of looking up people on LinkedIn and she's gotten emails and phone calls with people who work at NASA, like as a result and who are usually behind tons of red tape when somehow they've been uh, interested in talking with her, you know, so, um, don't be afraid to just email people out of the blue or find them on Twitter. Like, and that's the thing, like at my little low stage of life and career stuff, like I love when people reach out to me and ask me for stuff. Like I love doing that. I'm, I love getting invited on cod- podcasts like this. Cause not just because, you know, I love talking, but also because I feel a need and I feel responsible, uh, for sharing what I have learned with other people. Like I legitimately feel like I have a, a moral, I guess, obligation to help out with that. Cause if you have information, you know, why not share it with other people? Exactly. That's, that's brilliant. And I think so many people actually, even people not necessarily in the, you know, service and like nonprofit or like activism world, a lot of people do naturally want to, you know, help others. And I, I, I always joke, you know, oh, all people are bad and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, a lot of they people... Are. <laughs> <laughs> people like, are I mean, terrible. <laughs> but at the end of the day, too, a lot of people, as long as they have the time for it and you're not asking for loads of money from them, they do want to help. And especially if they also aren't in that, like, service world that I was talking about, it does make them feel like they really are doing something, you know, even if it's just, oh, can you help us out with this or, oh, you're in this job, can you connect us to this person? And, you know, we even get emails from people that aren't youth. Like, you know, we received an email the other day that was like, oh, I, I know I'm an old guy, but I really like what you're doing. So if you ever need anything, here's my LinkedIn. So, you know, we can kind of see what he does and, you know, I'd be more than happy to help. So really making those connections and reaching out. And I think that's um, one of the things that you touched on as well by like which university you attend or kind of the circles in which you put yourself in are really good for kind of networking. And, you know, as you said, you don't need to be going to like the the Ivy Leagues or even the top universities. It's more just about putting yourself in those situations that set you up 
for where you want to go. And those don't need to be the top people in the field. It just needs to be people, you know, with those similar interests that are going to help you, you know, run different shows. For example, if Chloe and I hadn't like continued to work together and all that kind of stuff, and we hadn't kind of created a circle of like activism and environmentalists around us, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. Yeah, I mean, I guess personal example, and I'm going to try to word this as carefully as I can. Like, I really wanted to go to Yale. Like, I really want, like, my brother was born in their hospital. Like, my dad went to their grad school, you know, and I mentioned that and it didn't help. Like, I got deferred and then denied, which is the most painful outcome possible. Um, But, and I was really bummed about that for a while because they um, have an amazing English program. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, you know, Meryl Streep and Sandra Boynton, this children's book author I love, went there, you know. Um, and I was really, I think Meryl Streep went there. She went there, right? I think so. Anyway, they have a great drama school. <laughs> anyway, um, and so I was really bummed about that. But three years later at Georgetown, oh my goodness, <laughs> the, the connection to DC, like even if Georgetown is ranked marginally lower on whatever chart, I guess, um, the connection to DC and the connection to media that Georgetown has, I strongly believe has been better for me than Yale would have been, like vastly so. Um, I'm not saying Yale, you know, is worse for other people, but for me and for what I was aiming for, like Georgetown is perfect. Um, And campus culture matters too. Like there's a campus culture on Georgetown of trying to work on social justice while understanding others deeply and working in the field to help others and being a creative kind of media oriented person or being a diplomat, um, very like fuzzy, like humanities culture. And that was perfect for me. And that's something, if you can talk with a student from a school you're applying to and ask them those questions, like, Hey, what, what are people generally interested in? What are the vibes? Um, that's hugely helpful for both what you send to them in your application, but also kind of what you dedicate your heart and emotions to worrying about for seven months during that process. Yeah. Definitely. I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in the vibe check. I feel like that's, that's like the most official and like accurate thing you can kind of do at least on a surface level is just, is just see the vibes. And that sounds like some weird, like hippie, like Gen Z thing, but it's really not because like, if, if, if you don't match with those vibes, it's probably not the right place for you whether it be university or a club or all those kinds of things because you know that's just another word for like gut instincts really yeah. and you know just trust yourself in that sense and that doesn't say if something makes you uncomfortable you know don't do it because it's you know something you're maybe not as familiar with but you know for example if you're applying to art like if you want to do art at a university and everyone else is just really stemmy and you know, is talking about rockets and like no one's interested in anything you're interested in. You're like, you know what? I kind of hate this. This sucks. This is yeah. boring. Probably, probably not the right vibe for you, you know? Me, 2014 yeah. colorized. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I don't want to name the school, even though you can easily Google Northern Virginia Tech High School and find out the one I'm talking about. Like, they cut the history class requ- that is normally required for ninth graders in my area and replaced it with a robot building class. Like, I'm totally here for learning how to build robots, but you don't replace history education yeah. with robot building. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But frankly, like, that was a horrendous and painful experience where I learned a ton about myself. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, you my I will say my favorite question, because like where I'm kind of in the college process right now, as is Georgia, and like I'll be on a webinar 
And my favorite question to ask is what song describes the campus culture? Because you oh, just get such <laughs> interesting responses. And it's so funny. Like, you'll get the bright side. <laughs> and it's, no, but like, a lot of that's like students, you know? And it's just so interesting to see what people have to say. Um, we've met, you mentioned kind of political cartoons, and you also work quite a lot with comedy. So, how do you use comedy to educate people about politics and specifically in the Hilltop show? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm going to start this question off, answer off with another origin story. Like, I am a huge Tolkien fan, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. Um, and I learned about Stephen Colbert at age 14 through a friend. Um, and she showed me the interview on the Colbert Report where Stephen interviews Smaug the Dragon, where they have the giant CGI, I think CGI, it might have been a puppet, I still don't know, really uh, intricate looking dragon head in the studio, like bursts through and threatens to eat Stephen. Um, and that was like the gateway drug. And I realized, oh my gosh, he's talking about huge political issues that are really complicated um, and introducing them to a wide audience. Amazing. Like I I would not, I would be, I would have been interested, but I wouldn't have gotten as like invested or eager to stay on top of the development of these issues um, if I hadn't first learned about them through, you know, Stephen Colbert, you know, and, and the gang, you know, like those slate of shows. Um, so I think that the deep dive model, like the last week tonight model is uniquely powerful because it doesn't just present you with, oh my gosh, Mitch McConnell did what? Like it goes into analysis. Um, so I think that like the last week tonight model in terms of comedy teaching people about big issues, like has totally hit the nail on the head. Um, but yeah, I mean, the daily show goes into detail as well. My point being, uh, it's on, on a basic level, most of the shows do hit the introduction checkmark. Um, and some of the other shows like the late show to a degree, but more, um, late night with Seth Meyers last week tonight and the daily show, um, legitimately go into like actual political analysis. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you are someone who wants to be a political science major, like you need to go beyond and read like Tocqueville, you know, you need to do the deep diving on your own. Um, but for, again, that general audience, that initial introduction and shallow to deep dive analysis that the, some of those shows offer is just precious material. Uh, I'm so glad they're doing like, the Lord's work, like amazing, um, because think of all of the young people and, you know, people who wouldn't otherwise get into politics who now know things and have opinions and are donating and are activists uh, because they heard about these issues on these shows who might not have done it otherwise. So um, the show we have, the Shield Up show has not done a deep dive in a while just because I have been, I have the Lincoln Project job and I'm like, you know, salary or <laughs> working at home alone in my room, filming myself, editing for six hours and posting it, salary. Um, but this summer, I'm hoping to get back into writing the deep dives. Um, so um, we do the headlines now, like onion headlines. Um, we've been working on those for the last couple months, and I think they've been really awesome. Um, I, the headlines are serve the same purpose, I think, as kind of the shallow dive model, um, where an issue will be introduced. Um, the dopamine will go off when someone laughs at our take on it. And then hopefully they'll be interested enough based on the deep dive to go research it further. Um, but yeah, I think that's the power is the power of the entertaining dopamine loaded introduction. And then if you have a deep dive, you go a little further than that. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think particularly with issues like the environmental crises, you need that because it requires change. And I do appreciate how hard change is. I think humans really, really struggle with change and climate change requires change. So making it digestible and making it funny, that's the only way that there can be change. Because if you just throw scientific facts, you know, that doesn't trigger anything in most people but comedy does making something interesting does and that is super super necessary it is like yeah i mean and have you heard of the broccoli brownie phenomenon or it might have been zucchini brownies i have not (laughs) it's like 20 years ago i don't know my mom got a cookbook uh for you know moms who were trying to sneak vegetables into their children and i remember seeing it on the tv and i've as a six-year-old, it felt like a phenomenon. I don't know if it actually was. Uh, but the idea is that you could make brownies out of zucchini. And I think that um, political comedy deep dives can be compared to, specifically deep dives can be compared really well to broccoli brownies in that it is a brownie. <laughs> it's fun. It's entertaining. Uh, but it also has that degree of educational material in it. Um, So it's not broccoli or zucchini, like go eat broccoli and zucchini. You need a balanced diet, but um, broccoli and zucchini is a great way to get into it and get people's attention. But yeah. Definitely. I think that I I love that comparison. Uh, That's great. Just about making it not only like, um, like digestible and understandable for people, but making it fun and making it interesting, making people actually want to learn because then, as you said, people will then go on to do those deep dives you know, and with issues that we are all contributing to, such as, you know, um, climate change and the environmental crises, um, you know, just for example, the pandemic, we don't necessarily have the luxury to ignore these problems. We don't have the luxury of leaving it to these experts. You know, imagine if it was only doctors who knew anything about COVID-19 and we all just went around, you know, coughing all over each other. That definitely would not be great for humanity. And the same applies to the environmental crises with if we are not equipped with the knowledge of how to act, even if it's on a basic level, that's that's really important. And for example, um, like uh, Richard Feynman, he's a very famous quantum physicist. And um, even though, you know, not everyone necessarily needs to understand quantum physics in their day to day lives. It was just one example of he is so well known, not only for, you know, how much of a genius he is, but how he was able to take quantum physics, an incredibly, incredibly complex thing. And, you know, they say, if you think you understand quantum physics, you don't. Um, but like Richard Feynman, he managed to make it understandable for people. And now when I'm studying quantum physics in my class, we literally just learned Richard Feynman's diagrams pretty much because at this point it's like, if you can understand this, that that's good enough for now. And then, you know, as you said, you can do the deep dive later on in life. Yeah. And I mean, for some issues, you don't need to go do the college level readings for it. Like for, in some circumstances, like the last week tonight deep dive is more than enough for you to go forth and conquer and donate and be an activist. Um, but yeah, like my introduction to last week tonight was my AP statistic teacher showing us the lottery episode when we were talking about statistics. Um, so yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, they, it's just a... I mean, that's one of the things that I found really cool about the field of like political comedy and I guess using entertainment as a vehicle for education, because um, 
uh, as like a 14 through 18 year old, I did a lot of cartooning <laughs> and I felt really bad that I felt like I wasn't making a difference. Like I felt like, okay, you know, it's entertaining. This drawing of a cat is entertaining me and my mom. <laughs> Great. Um, but it feels so much better like inside, I guess, spiritually that I'm, I think I'm hopefully at least helping some people understand issues better, or at least out of principle speaking up for what I believe is the truth. Um, so it, 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 it really does wonders for your, I guess, self-esteem and feeling of self-worth that you're doing something important um, when you're able to do something you feel is making a difference. I'd try it out sometime. <laughs> Definitely. I think that's a very good note to kind of end on, you know, making a difference and using your passions to make a difference. And as we kind of mentioned throughout this episode, everyone has some sort of skill and it can be super, super niche. But if you can use that to have a positive impact on the world, I mean, that's the best possible outcome. So thank you so much, um, Alexandra, for being with us today. And thank you to the listeners for tuning into today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at EcoCircleIMT. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, make sure that you check out season one, episode two, which features Graham Phillips, where we speak about our activism, political engagement, and empathy within politics. So thank you so much, Alexandra. Thank you for having me.